Hello, I'm Al Hooper, and you're listening to the Northern Report. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to the Northern Report. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm coming right at you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here on the Northern Report, I aim to shine a light on emerging and existing Canadian talent, as well as some of the legends we're still lucky to have with us. My guest on today's show is Al Hooper, a member of the New Brunswick Country Hall of Fame and an East Coast Music Award winner. Al Hooper has been entertaining audiences for over a half century, and he's still going strong. Star of stage, radio, and television, Al has released over 50 albums and recorded for Paragon, Dominion, Columbia, RCA, and TWA records over the course of his near 60-year career. Born in Back Bay, New Brunswick, Al spent the early years honing his music at halls, dances, and jamborees before moving to Toronto, where he formed the Blue Diamonds Show Band. The Blue Diamonds were recognized for several years as one of Canada's number one show bands. I was so happy to chat with another Canadian country music legend who spent time in the trenches of Toronto's famed honky-tonk and tavern scene in the 1960s. Folks, I hope you'll enjoy my chat with the East Coast Ambassador, Al Hooper. So I guess I guess maybe it's best to start start early on. Are you you're born and raised in New Brunswick? Yes, I was. I was born in Back Bay, New Brunswick, and uh, and I went to school there, graduated, and went to work here for a little while in the uh, office and. Uh, for Connors Brothers, then I moved to uh, Ontario at an early age. You were, were you were already out of school by the time you ended up in Ontario? Oh yes, I was, yeah. And uh, I had a little band going here. We used to play dances and do like shows and auditoriums and school auditoriums and so on, and uh, before I went to Toronto. Uh, do, you, do you come from a musical background? Is there other musicians in the house when you're growing up? Yes, my dad used to play the uh, piano and harmonica. My a couple of my brothers played guitars and so on, and did some singing. and um, And I, I guess I just picked it up from there. I learned how to play the guitar and started singing. I guess. What kind of music was was getting played in the house in those days? Well, between, between gospel and country and. Um, and, you know, some of uh, that era back, I'm talking about back in the 60s, there was a lot of rock stuff. So I suppose some of those songs, the Beatles songs and so on, I did some of that stuff and especially at dances and so on. I um, I sang some, you know, more up-tempo songs then, but mostly country. Who were your favorite artists in, in those days when you're getting started? Oh, man, that's a good question. Hank Williams was uh, probably one of my favorite singers way back then, and um, and most uh, you know the Johnny Cash thing and all. Um, I did a little bit of all their songs in my show, and and I wrote songs too. Not not so many in the early ages, but when I went to Toronto, I wrote quite a few of my own songs and uh, recorded them. Yeah, the the first song of yours I heard, I stumbled across uh, doing some research and uh, kind of gone down this rabbit hole of all those labels, Paragon, Marathon, and, and, and those, they're kind of well-documented, all of the releases. So I came across your record and your song, NB to T.O. Um, what year did that one come out? That was on one of the early records, and so it would have been 60s, uh, probably... 64, 65, because um, I went to Toronto in the early 60s, and and um, I had the Don Valley Boys first uh, as a band, and then I formed the Blue Diamond Show Band, which uh, we had together right until I moved back home again. Yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, got some info on the Blue Diamond Band today, digging around. Um, did you, you guys formed in New Brunswick or in Toronto? In Toronto, that was formed in Toronto, the Blue Diamonds. And you and, were they the the fellows that played on most of those records in those days for you? Well, they did. Plus, I hired extra musicians because, like, we didn't have a steel guitar 
in the band and not a piano player. We had like bass rhythm lead guitars, two lead guitars. One was like sort of a rock type uh, lead guitar player and one was country one. So we didn't use drums in the early days because they didn't have any dance floors in the clubs. And they this is something they put in later. And uh, we had a bluegrass guy that uh, played about 15 or 16 different instruments, Eddie Poirier. And uh, um, so we were, you know, we could switch back and forth and all the lead guitar players played bass. They all could switch around except me. I just played rhythm guitar and sang and I led the band. So by the time you end up in Toronto, I guess early, mid-60s, uh, you had some experience playing live already from playing dances and stuff like that in New Brunswick? Yes, I did. I I was playing real uh, at a real young age. I was doing shows, you know, for dances, and, and we'd put on like a variety-type show and uh, charge people to come in for the shows and so on, and... Uh, we used a lot of school auditoriums and legion halls and things like that, whatever we could get a hall to play out of. And you're playing playing the hits of the day, playing the Beatles and playing Johnny Cash and playing your own songs as well yet? No, I wasn't playing much of my own songs at that stage because I really didn't get serious writing till I moved to Toronto and and we started recording. And once we started recording, it was to my advantage to, you know, record some of my own songs because it was more profitable. Sure. When we got airplay on our own songs, you know, we made more money on them. So, so I started writing then. I probably wrote over a thousand songs over the years and you know, I didn't record all those, but I probably recorded, um, you know, probably close to a hundred of my own songs over the years. So when you got to Toronto, did you did you have to work a day job there, or was was a you know there was the infrastructure for lots of live performing? Did you were you able to secure some some gigs, kind of a regular circuit, pretty quickly? No, I went to work at a day job. I worked for the Union Car Carbide Company as an expediter. Then I went over to the Ontario Hospital Association, and I worked there as a sales executive. And but at that point, I was singing in the clubs. You know, I had, um, uh, two, like I say, two different bands, uh, one that I started, the Don Valley Boys, and then, then from there, I went into the Blue Diamonds and, um, and kept the Blue Diamonds, oh gosh, I don't know how many years, it was early 60s to late 70s that the Blue Diamonds uh, existed, and uh, they were, I had local boys, and then Roy McCall was from PEI, and Doug Waters was from uh, Plasterant, New Brunswick, and Eddie Poirier, um, who you might have heard tell of because he's very talented. He has quite a few records of bluegrass, Yeah, and he's still playing, doing bluegrass. He was from Moncton, New Brunswick, and he's still working out of Moncton, New Brunswick, and uh, he's from Rogersville. And um, so we were all Maritimers, and there's only a couple changes made at the, towards the end of the Blue Diamonds. Uh, I had Shane Dory, and he was from Nova Scotia, and he did more of the pop and you know uh, the pop music. That's when the dance floors and so on were coming in. We had to do, uh, we hated it because we had to cater to the dance floor as well as doing our own show. <laughs> yeah. So it really affected the bluegrass end of it because. They didn't want to dance to the banjos and the fiddles and things like that. And uh, so we made a couple changes. Shane Dory joined me then. And uh, then later on was Roy Fiener on drums. We had to put a drummer in to accommodate the dance floor. And Sherry Black, she was uh, another uh, singer or recording artist as well. She joined us at that point. So it's uh, it, it was leaning towards more of the you know barroom honky tonk country music thing in Toronto at that time. Yeah, it was. It, like I say, they put these little postage stamp um, um, dance floors in, and we sort of had to cater to them, which we didn't want to do because we had a our own stage show. It was a stage show that we were doing, and and we do like jamboree type things on Sundays at different venues and um and we traveled at that point we were just traveling where we could get back everybody worked a day job wow and yeah. which made it hard we sing six seven nights a week and we have to get back and go to work in the morning and um uh, so it made it hard and later 
later on we kept as we got more popular with radio and we were doing TV shows and and we were expanding further and further out of the city. Uh, at that time, uh, Roy McCall, who was working as a, a post office guy delivering mail, and it was getting too far from him for him to do. So that's when he uh, resigned from the band, and we switched and put Shane Dory in. And and then eventually, I had to quit my job, and all the guys did, and we just went into music all full time. And we were on the road a lot and uh, traveled all over Ontario and, and did the Maritimes. We used to tour through the Maritimes in the summertime, and that way you give everybody a chance to get home. I'd try to book shows near their hometown, so that way they'd get to go visit their people for a few days. But we worked pretty well 52 weeks a year. Boy. What a life, you know, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that and I'm loosely familiar with some of the names of some of the pickers and some of the venues that you were probably playing and, uh, you know, I run across the names and the credits, uh, Ollie Strong is a name that I see a lot playing steel guitar and he seemed to be like the go-to guy around Toronto at that point and Mickey McGivern, I'm sure you, these fellows either played with you or you ran into them over those, over those years. Ollie Strong, uh, he did uh, most of my steel work and the band still work for that time on, on the record recordings. And, uh, um, we use like different piano players and the names don't pop in my head right quickly now, but we'd bring piano piano players in the end to add in piano. And, and if we wanted, uh, any odd instrument, we'd just bring a artist in for the day and, and he'd lay down the tracks for the added stuff we wanted to add to the records. Uh, but the band itself, uh, I think they had 36 LPs out, and we were, we were Canada's most recorded group at that time, and we were billed as Canada's number one show band um, through the last, you know, seven or eight years that we were together. Um, um, so who this? I guess you 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 said the band kind of got rolling in the mid 60s. Yeah, I went no. Well, I'm just trying to think. I went there in the early '60s, and I only had the other band for a short while, maybe a year, and then I put together the Blue Diamonds. And uh, it would be early '60s, I would say, like '62, uh, '63. We were together for for I moved home in late '70s, so probably you know 16, 18 years we were together. Wow, six nights a week. Six nights a week, and sometimes seven. We do jamborees and stuff for like a family type shows on Sunday, outdoor parks and, and things like that. And uh, we did all the local TV shows there too at the time, and and the radio. We used to cover all the radio stations as we went. You know, when we went into a town, I'd make arrangements to go do an interview with the DJs and so on at that time as well. How far were you traveling in Ontario outside outside of Toronto? Well, when we were still working day jobs, we were still going like a hundred miles or so outside and had to rush back and go to work and rush back the next night, get back. It was a tiresome thing then. And then we finally started traveling, you know, uh, we, most of us, I guess we all lived in Scarborough at that point. And, um, then we started going way out of town, you know, and covering things and, and the money got to the point that we could make a living at it. And, uh, of course, we were selling the records off stage and stuff like that at the same time. And when it got to the point that, you know, everybody could make a living, then we decided to quit our day, day jobs and uh, and just go on the road. Uh, it, it, it seemed like when you were starting to pick up steam in Toronto, that Toronto was a bit of a, a bit of a hot spot for the country music and the honky tonk stuff. And there was a lot of bands based out of there. Many of them, it seems like didn't have to travel that far and they were able to work, you know, every week in the area. Who were some of the other popular local acts at that time? And some of the places that you guys would play at? Um, well, okay. Johnny Burke and East winds were pretty popular. Same as we were, they were, they were, uh, Working in the Horseshoe, we took over for them at the Horseshoe Tavern, which was the most popular uh, club in town. But we played uh, all the uh, all the nightclubs. Um, I'm just trying to think here. Um, they was like the we started there. The first club we played in was the Glen, Glen Eagles Club and Rouge Valley, and then we played the Ben Lamont, the White Castle, Scarborough House. Uh, I'm just trying to think the Cloverleaf, 
the Edison, um, Cousin Don's. Uh, I, you know, I'm just trying to think of these off the top of my head. But we went in the Horseshoe. We played there for two years straight. And we worked with a lot of the American artists. We worked with, uh, you know, uh, people like Bill Anderson, Mac Wiseman, and uh, Gene Shepard, Skeeter wow. Davis, uh, Waylon Jennings, and, and oh, gosh, I'm just trying to think. There's so many. And uh, Lucille Starr and Ronnie Prophet. We worked with all those guys and uh, on package shows. And, uh, and we stayed in the Horseshoe quite a while. That was good publicity for us because uh like i say we were always either fronting one of the american <coughs> excuse me one of the americans um fronting their show and then once once a month like for one week they'd feature us by ourselves and then the rest of the other three weeks we were uh, working with uh, some american we'd come out and do our show and then we'd bring them on to do their show and uh, and we worked with a lot of like the old the older singers, Wed Pierce, Tex Ritter, you know, Mac Wiseman, and a lot of them. And uh, um, like I say, uh, we worked with most of them at the time that were coming into town. And uh, they were and the Edison Edison Hotel. I don't know if you know of that one. Was on Young Street, and they used to bring in sort of like B acts, um, country acts to their place and. And we worked with a lot of, uh, there for a few times too with uh, people like uh, Ronnie Prophet and Orville Prophet and and Lucille Starr and people like that. We worked there with them for a little while as well. So you guys would set up and you played at the Horseshoe like steadily for the whole year, and and they would bring up these other acts, and you guys would back them up as well. Yeah, we were we were in the Horseshoe. I think almost two years and. Johnny Burke come out at that time. He had the East Winds, and and we went in, took over for him. We were there mostly two years, and they were some of the bands uh, or people out of uh, Nashville would bring their own band. Oh, and when and when they did, we didn't back them up. We just do their French show, and then I'd introduce them, bringing them on. But a lot of the times, uh, the management they didn't want to hire the whole band out of Nashville, so they just hired the uh, main artists and. Uh, um, you know, and that way we'd back them up and save the uh, club money, eh? I helped get Stompin' Tom in the horseshoe when we left there. Like, uh, after you play a place a long while, like, you sort of get stale. Mm-hmm. I think you do anyway, and, and uh, you're not doing enough fresh shows. So, anyway, we left there, then we went back on the road again. And, uh, and uh, but Tom took over for us. Um, the manager, Jack Starr, said, oh, Tom was working at a club down from us. He used to come in the afternoons and uh, between matinee and Saturday, Saturday afternoons and the Saturday night show, and we'd have dinner together. And uh, and the uh, I told the manager, I said, you should get Tom in here, really. And he said, oh, I don't know. He said, I don't know. He said, this stomping on a board thing and all this. And I, t- <laughs> I said, I tell you, he'll fill the place, really. And uh, he said, do you think so? I said, I know so. I bet you $100 he'll fill it. And anyway, I talked to him like that. And finally, he took Tom in there. And Tom was in there right straight ahead for, I guess, three, four months after we left. Six nights a week for three, four months. Yeah. And yeah, uh, kind of kind of building on that same sort of East Coast crowd and, and stories and songs that you guys were on. Yeah. He just filled it right up because he had, he had a big following, Tom did, and I, uh, you mentioned Gene Shepard and Lucille Starr. Those are two of my favorite country music singers from that era. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love Gene Shepard and that whole sound of her records in the late 50s and into the 60s. What was that like working with Gene? Gene, Gene was great. She was, um, well, she swore like a trooper. <laughs> <laughs> it was embarrassing to us because we wasn't used to that. We were sort of a clean type band, and, uh, but she's great. To, uh, the first night she was there, we sort of had a little problem. Uh, we come out and did our show and brought, I introduced her, give her a big build up and come on. Then after she'd done her show, she went down and told, uh, uh, Jack Starr was the manager and she wanted, uh, him to tell us just to play instrumentals because we were upstaging her. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, uh, Jack Starr come and told me this and I went down to the dressing room and I went in and I said, look, Gene, 
you know, we have records out as well as you do, and we're going to make you sound just as good as we possibly can. And but I can't cut my show down to do instrumentals because I'll, you know, people expect us to sing because we were four separate recording artists in the same show. So, and we had at that point probably five or six records out there on the radio and so on. So it would have really looked stupid for us to do that. And um, so we brought her on, did her next show. And after that, she called me down to the dressing room. She said, I want to apologize to you. She said, I just wasn't used to the band, you know, being as good as I am and so on and getting the applause like you guys do. And I said, well, we've been here for a while. And like I say, and we're going to do real good for you. And um, so anyway, after that, we were fine, you know, and we got along great after that. And uh, and she, matter of fact, I was at the Opry and and she brought me down, introduced me at, at the Opry. And I worked, you know, with Bill Anderson then, then and uh, uh, Skeeter Davis was on the show the same night. And I went backstage with them all. She called me out from the audience. And then I sang at the old Ryman Auditorium. That was the Grand Ole Opry out there. And, uh, oh, that was uh, back before this time. And then they had, when I went back the last time, they had the new, new Opry. But some of them are still, a lot of them are gone now. I mean, they're passed away but we we worked with most uh most of them at the time whoever the stars were at the time and we worked with gordy tapp uh, as well we did a few shows with him and uh at that time it's probably my biggest slip up and i ever done but we rehearsed with him at the um at his farm just outside of ontario and we did a few of the nightclubs there and he said i'm moving to nashville he said, I, w- I wish you guys would come with me. He said, I'd hire you as all. He said, I'm going to be doing this no new show at a Nashville. And I said, oh, yeah. And um, But he didn't know what it was. They didn't have any name for it. And he said, you guys, you know, would really fit in there because you'd play all the instruments and everything. And, um, of course, all the guys were married. It was pretty hard to uproot everybody. And we didn't take it. And uh, that turned out to be hee-haw. Oh, man, really? Yeah, and that was probably one of my biggest slip-ups. But but Tex Ritter, he wanted us to go back, and he wanted the sponsors out of Nashville, and and um, and and we worked with the uh, you know different artists out of there, and um, that wanted to take us back to Nashville and work with them, you know, on the road down there. But uh, it's it was hard, but everybody was married, and they they. Uh, they uh, had families and, you know, kids in school. It's pretty hard just to up and go, you know. And you're making but, a living uh, up here too, right? You're, pl- you're playing every week, every night, and, uh, you know, that contributes to uh, making st- sticking around a little easier. Well, we, we were probably the top paid country band in the city at that time. We were to the point, uh, I think if I asked for any more money, <laughs> they wouldn't have hired us <laughs> because the but. You know, we had we were pretty well full house. You know, six nights a week in all those clubs, and place uh, to be full before we got there. And and so the clubs made money off us as well. And we were like a promotional band. I might play a whole month at this club, and we'll go somewhere else on the other end of the city or whatever. And and probably three four months, I'd be back to the same club again. You know. Yeah, nice little circuit. Was it was it hard for you guys to carve out that audience, or or did people take to the band pretty quickly? Well, there was there was a lot of people there from the East Coast at that time. Everybody in the East Coast went to Toronto to work, and and they um, so you know once they found out we were all from the East Coast and so on, they just loved us and followed us around everywhere we went. You know, every every place we played, we'd had a big crowd, and most of them were East Coasters because. Uh, there were a lot of East, well, you know, we had Toronto or Ontario people as well, but but there was a lot of East Coasters from every, you know, every province in, in New Brunswick and uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and tons of them. And I originally started the uh, talent show and the clubs to build up the crowds early in the week. And uh, I brought people up on stage and, and uh, have them sing, and they thought that was a big opportunity to be able to come up and sing with us. And we'd give old prizes and for the night, you know, whoever uh, the crowd would pick for the best singer. So I started that in the nightclubs and all the clubs picked it up then because it brought them out crowd early in the week. You know, they had an early week crowd. And uh, so I had started that originally. And uh, 
And the we, we toured with people come up too, like Hank Snow. We fronted some of his shows and different artists that, uh, you know, would, would come to town. And Charlie Pry, for example, uh, he worked with us at the Horseshoe. But then when he come to town, he'd get his... Uh, the CNE, he he worked the CNE a couple of times, and he got us go over there and do his front show and back him up there. Oh wow, and, that must uh, have been really cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and we got to meet a lot of people that way. You know, a lot of American people. And and when I went to Nashville, I knew a lot of people there. When I got there, you know, I was doing promotion uh, on some of our records down to there and the songwriting thing, and and I had our promotion manager with us and. And uh, or with me, I went there alone. I didn't take the band there that time. I just went with it, the promotion manager. And and but I then you know knowing those people, you know that I work with, it made it a lot easier for me to get into places and so on. Hey there again, folks. As we approach the halfway point of today's episode, I'd like to thank you once again for tuning in. You're listening to the Northern Report podcast. I'm your host Sean Burns, and our guest today is Al Hooper. I'll remind you to follow along with the Northern Report podcast and our playlist on Spotify. You can subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen on YouTube, our anchor.fm home base, or wherever you find your podcasts. Now, by all accounts, with the Blue Diamond Show Band, Al established himself as one of the more dependable and entertaining outfits on the circuit during his time in Toronto. Rubbing elbows with some of the brightest stars in country music, Al was seemingly always willing to lend a hand to an up-and-comer. Now, I've learned a lot while trying to fill in some blanks during my deep dive surrounding the Paragon Marathon catalog of releases. My fascination with the Six-Nighters, and in particular, the strong honky-tonk scene of the 1960s and 70s in Toronto, has introduced me to a ton of beautiful country music and beautiful country music singers. I was immediately interested in learning and hearing more upon seeing that NB to TO album name and cover. And when I pressed play on the song, I kind of knew what it was going to be about before I even heard it but I was not disappointed. After scratching around a little more, there it was. The perfect album title and the perfect nickname for Al. The East Coast Ambassador. A little cocky, maybe, but maybe not. Proud from where he was from and eager to share the stories and songs from home, Al was humble, but also knew where he and the Blue Diamonds stood. And hey, sometimes you got to pump your own tires and change your own flat in this business. I'll let Al tell us the rest. Next. Um, When when did you become known as the East Coast Ambassador? Well, we were always advertising the East Coast on stage, you know, and uh, one way or the other. And I wrote uh, NB to TO was New Brunswick to Toronto, of course. And I wrote Beautiful New Brunswick and few other songs and the the PEI guy, Roy McCall, he would sing PEI songs and we do the Nova Scotia home type things and everybody started calling me the East Coast Ambassador and said, you're always bragging up the East Coast. And so they gave me the name the East Coast Ambassador. And I think we used that on a couple of records and some of our promo stuff. It's a great handle and a really great angle. And if you, if a, you know, the large portion of your audience is Maritimers, I, I bet they really respond to that. That must have been really cool to be known as the East Coast ambassador. And there was probably a, a bunch of you fellows from from down down east in Toronto at that time making country music in the circuit. There was a lot of bands, and a lot of them uh, that we'd run into or we get got to know. They were a lot of East Coasters, uh, you know, had bands uh, in Toronto and. Uh, um, going at the time and playing the clubs the same as we were. And, uh, uh, most of them didn't play steady like we did, you know, they play like maybe a weekend here or a week here, and then they'd be off for a while. Then when I started booking them, of course, they all went, that's why I had so many, I had so many, I had to cut them off. They all wanted to book with me because they knew we were playing the better clubs and they wanted to get into these places. And, uh, and and I did. I got a lot of them in there, you know. Uh, if they, you know, if they qualified, of course. 
But uh, I got a lot of them in the better clubs uh, during that time. Uh, these these days, it seems like uh, almost everybody is set up to record at home, you know, at least some semblance of a respectable sounding product. And I imagine it was a lot different in the 60s. Uh, from what I've been able to dig up, you recorded for the Paragon label and Dominion record label, and there was a release on Columbia Records as well? Yeah, we, uh, well, we worked for Marathon, Paragon, Allied Records. Uh, those were some of the early ones. And then we went to Dominion Records. And then RCA, we recorded for RCA. And then when I moved back home, I was still under contract to Columbia Records. And then, you know, that contract sort of ran out. And I had my own label at the same time. TWA Records is my own label. And I have Winmire Publishing. So I kept them up and I record through them now. I, I use my own recording label or record label. And uh, that's who we've been using for the last... Um, few years since I've been home. But I imagine in those days when, you know, you're not, when you're not able to record so easily from your, you know, from your basement or your house or wherever, that you're kind of at the mercy of these labels. It was, were these sort of traditional record deals where they were fronting the money and, and getting their, their investment back from your sales? The early ones, all the early ones were, but when I put them through my own label, I have to pay the bills and, and, uh, but the early, the early labels, they pay for all our recordings and so on. Did they uh, have a hand in what songs were selected, or was it just like they were covering the expense and you guys were going in and doing your thing? Well, they'd have some. They, you know, they might, you know, say, "Well, we want to keep this bluegrass or this country and more little pop to it or something." But they, they really didn't tell us what to record, and uh, we were selling well. All our records were in all of the Kmarts and all those other Zellers and all those stores at that time, right straight across Canada, you could buy our records, uh, and, you know, in all those stores. And, uh, so they, they were making the money off us because, uh, some of the early labels that we were with, they didn't pay the royalties and stuff, things like that. And they eventually went bankrupt and, and, um, Without paying, they they signed a lot of people up because everybody wanted a record in those days. And uh, we, I sold records off stage between every show. And Jamborees, I'd hire girls to come in and sell my records. Uh, you know, um, you know, while we'd be on stage singing. And but they, um, when we when we got with the bigger labels, like Dominion wasn't that way. Uh, Dominion was good, and and Columbia and RCA, of course. Um, they, you know, they, they were good to us. They paid for everything and they paid for, they line up promo, they promo things that they were having uh, or big shows and they'd get us on those and, you know, just to promote our records and stuff as well. Paragon became Marathon, right? Paragon um, became Marathon and then they became Allied Records. And um, they... Um, I think they, you know, they went bankrupt eventually. And uh, when I moved home, the bank called me and wanted me to buy because they were going bankrupt. When we did buy them out, I just moved home, been home about two weeks, and and they wanted me to take over the whole thing. And they had like thousands of LPs still in the warehouse. They all went with it, and they offered the whole works to me for a dollar. Oh man! And, and it was awful tempting to move back, and I. I thought thought about it, and I said, "No, I've done that scene. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna move home, and uh, I'm back home, and I, I'm not gonna come back." And like I say, I built my own nightclub within oh five or six months. I had my own nightclub going, and and we had uh, a steakhouse and seafood. You know, we had a lot of the business people come there during the day for meetings and so on, and we had entertainment like three to four nights a week. And I sang there every Thursday night when I was in town. And when I wasn't, I'd have someone fill in. And I hired, hired bands on the weekends to uh, play there. Like local and local and regional bands? Yeah, from the area. Not right from the direct area, but from, say, St. John to Penfield or uh, all around the province. The bands would, you know, want to come and work there. And um, so I, I hired them all, all around everywhere. But... And I had that nightclub for quite a while until the highway decided they wanted to put a, a robe through it. And uh, that ended that. They um, 
they put a, a turn in the road going to another small town. They built a major highway out by the front, and then they put a like an access right through the middle of my nightclub. They stole it from me, to be honest with you, at <laughs> the price they paid me for it. Well, but anyway, yeah, you you uh, you flip the script and you uh, you go back to NB from TO to open Al's Red Lantern in Penfield, New Brunswick. Was that club already operating as a restaurant or something? Did you buy that or did you start it from scratch? I started from scratch. It originally was a grocery store, a, a big grocery store on four corners of the roads, you know, going to little villages like going to Black Harbor, Beaver Harbor and Penfield and St. George and so on. So it was an ideal location and it had been closed down for some time, you know, quite a long time it closed down. And I looked at it and I thought, boy, this is a lot of work. But at the same time, I bought it and, and started working on it and hired carpenters and everything. And we got it, you know, all put together. And, and um, I said, well, I'm going to build a club and a restaurant out of there. So I got the license for all the restaurants. And, and uh, we had the only steakhouse in the, you know, within 30, 40 miles. And, um, and the same way uh, the seafood that we had then, we had people come from everywhere for seafood. And then I built another restaurant. Uh, it was like a Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, in the next little town over called uh, Al's Chicken Coop. And that served uh, fried chicken and fried haddock and fish. And that ran for a long while. And, uh, of course, I went through a divorce and I lost that in the shuffle. So, <laughs> Well, was the, the reason you moved back to New Brunswick to start the club? Or was your time in, in Toronto just kind of coming to a natural end? Well, when we first went to Toronto, you know, everybody just loved it. Everything nice and clean and not much problems going on. But then uh, Toronto at this point started getting faster and faster and faster. And, uh, you know, and things were happening. You know, there's nights that we'd leave the nightclub, but, you know, you could go walk right up the streets, go up to a restaurant and eat. But I don't think you could do that now, you know, not walk around the middle of the night and so on. And uh, I shouldn't say that because probably you still can't. But uh, I, I went back for quite a while. I was going back and doing the uh, uh, Canadian Country Music uh, Reunion. I used to go up and do that every year and um, meet a lot of my old friends there and um, and sing on that show every year. But they, um, the last couple of years, they haven't been operating either. But I haven't been up for oh, probably 10 years now that I stopped going up. And uh, it became an expensive project when you're not working there is all right when you're working but you're you're all volunteering your time for this big country show and all the artists would get together and we'd work at a Lindsay, ontario and uh and um but anyway that i think they're still going but the uh pandemic's probably got them closed down for a while you know what year did you leave toronto oh it was um the late seventies, probably, probably seventy around seventy eight, seventy nine. Was the scene still thriving? Was still lots of work, lots of country music locally happening? We were booked two years in advance when I left. I had, uh, I wanted the band to take over, uh, um, you know, the bookings and so on, and they decided, well, they wanted to do their own thing and they formed a different name and so on. And they didn't take over the contracts, but I also wrote in all the contracts that I signed, cause we had a, we were a union band that, you know, I could, uh, for whatever reason I could get out of the contracts. Cause lots of time, you know, we'd be singing somewhere and we might have a radio like we're doing right now thing come up or a TV show that we'd be doing. And I wanted an out to get out of the contract for a day or two or, you know, for the week. So I got out of most of the contracts and, and having a booking agency made it a little easier because I filled in all their uh, contracts with other bands. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so that way they had, they wasn't short of entertainment or anything. So the other fellas yeah. stayed in Toronto and you moved back East? No, they, um, Oh, I'm just trying to think. Um, I guess most all of them moved back around that time or shortly after. 
uh, Doug Waters, he, he got car, killed in a car accident um, after he moved back. And uh, Shane Dory, he passed away with a brain aneurysm. And Roy McCall uh, is still on PEI, and I understand he's still singing. I haven't seen him for a little while. And Eddie Poirier, he runs the Bluegrass Band, the Bluegrass Four out of uh, Moncton. And he's still playing and doing some radio stuff and so on. Yeah, I ran across a bluegrass record of Eddie's from, I think, 1970. And then I also ran across a record of Doug's. And he, he was your lead guitar player for the, for your band? No, Eddie, Eddie played about 15 or 16 different instruments at the time. And he played whatever he was needed on. And, um, you know, whatever, and his part of the show, he'd do a banjo, say, a tune and a fiddle tune, and maybe mandolin or something else at that time and uh, whatever he was needed on. And his uh, wife would be at the shows lots of time and she sang with him. So we'd bring her up and, and she'd uh, do some singing. So, and he sang, you know, he sang a few songs, not, he was a steady singer. He was more or less an instrumentalist. He could play, like I say, 15 or 16 different instruments. Well, you know. Uh, wow. And D- Doug was the guitar player. Doug, Doug was a lead guitar player. But Doug could also play bass and some mandolin and a little bit of this. And and, uh, Roy McCall could play, you know, six or seven different instruments at least. And and then Shane, when he joined the band, he could play two or three different things. And so they could all move around except me. And uh, and I was fronting the show anyway, and I'd bring a feature each one of them. Uh, you know, when their turn comes up. and But if, you know, we had to move around, we need a different guitar player. They all could play bass, every one of them, and, and they all could play multiple instruments. So we were never stuck on what instruments we were going to use in a song. I find it so interesting that they, they were, uh, you, you know, your band at this time, but at the same time, they're putting out records uh, on these labels as well, like their own solo records. Yeah, they, that was the, the idea of our show. Like, we had four featured uh, recording artists under the same show, which could, you know, uh, offer us, you know, we had so much variety in our show that we could do just about anything. And uh, Shane, in his early, early years, was uh, Elvis Presley's sort of impersonator, and he was doing all the pop stuff. And, and like, I knew him from back home here. I went to school with him, actually. And... Uh, he could do all the Beatle type stuff and so on. And he did a lot of that on the show. And, um, so you had a pretty well-rounded show. Oh yeah. We could cover just about everything. I mean, if you didn't like my singing, you might like the next guy. If you didn't like that, you might like the next guy. It was that type of deal that, um, you didn't have to sit and listen to one artist all night. You know, you had four different artists entertaining you all the time. I like that. It's such a such a strong focus on providing the people with a real show, not just not just like a good band on stage playing songs, but you're you're giving people some variety in your act. That's why we were called a show band. We did we did mostly show. We were we were there. Like I say, when the dance floors come in, it sort of hurt us. It really uh, hurt us because I had to think uh, every show we're doing. What can we do? Dance tunes rather than show tunes, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and Eddie was doing like his stuff, a show stuff with the, on the fiddle or banjo, mandolin or whatever you want it. And it, it really hurt his end of the show, you know, and, uh, people would say, Oh, don't play the banjo. I, you know, I can't dance to it or something like that. And, and, uh, Eddie eventually went with, uh, put a bluegrass band together and, they toured around Ontario for a short while. Then he moved back home after that. There's uh, one record I came across this morning uh, that I, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Live at the Collins Bay Penitentiary. Right. We were the first uh, Canadian band to go into, that, uh, into the penitentiary at that time. Wow. And uh, our Pomo guy got the newspapers and everything to go in with us. And that was quite an experience to do that because... Um, well, when we got there, we had to bring all of our equipment in through one group of doors and bars and leave them behind us and then go to another locked door. We went through three different locked doors just to get in. 
and I left her stuff behind us. And the, the warden said, oh, it'll be on stage for you when you get there. And we have people here that will tune them for you, too, if you want us to. And I said, no, I'd rather let the band do that because <laughs> each guy had their own little thing, you know. And sure. and I didn't want them fooling around the instruments. And he said, the only thing I'll ask of you, if you break a string, put it in your pocket. Don't leave it on stage for whatever you do. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, it's one of the worst uh, weapons that they could have in their hands in here because you could cut some, someone's throat with it, eh? Wow, how many how many inmates were you guys performing in front of there? Oh Lord, they must have been. Oh gosh, I wouldn't want to say probably eight hundred to a thousand, maybe. Wow, what year was this? Do you remember? Um, not right off the top of my head, but probably around seventy three, seventy four, somewhere in there. Wow, that's such a such a great idea. Like you know the you know classic Johnny Cash prison records, and it's a it's a lost thing. It's you know it's it's really cool that you guys had the chance to do that, and it's on record. Well, we had a captive audience there, and we taped the whole show out of there. And the um, warden w- warned me. We took a girl in with us too. We took a girl singer just for the benefit of the guys that was there, and. Uh, and they had guards all around on, on alcoves up above the whole room all the time with rifles. And uh, But I did get down the audience. My Lord, there was guards come from everywhere. And uh, I just went down to say hello to a few people, and she went with me. And they wasn't long getting us back up on stage and so on. And uh, But they had to, and I got a guy from the audience up. This is a little strange story. Um they had told me he was a guitar player and so on, really good. And I said, oh, well, I'll bring him up if he wants to. And I brought him up, and he was excellent. And uh, a guitar player let him play with us for a little bit. And uh, then I asked him the story afterwards, what happened. And he was a entertainer, too, and uh, um, worked uh, the nightclubs and so on. And he come home one night early and uh, called his wife or whatever, and... Uh, um, well, maybe I shouldn't be telling this story, but anyway, uh, he was one of the nicest guys you ever talked to, but he was charged with murder and, uh, and he was in there and, you know, and that's, but he was, as far as, uh, actually the newspaper, I had to get permission, everything we did in there, we had a sign clear of it and, uh, or get the prisoners sign clear of it. And we had his picture in the paper coast to coast. His picture was out in front there with a uh, playing guitar. And um, they thought it was pretty good. But uh, that story was covered right from coast to coast by all the newspapers. Do you still have copies of all those records from the 60s and 70s that you made in Ontario? Uh, most of them. There's two or three that I'm missing. Uh, the only thing is, like, we went through the 8-track thing and the cassette thing. And uh, I'm missing some of those. I think I was missing two or three. Like, they just put us in the archives here in New Brunswick to show you how old I'm getting. <laughs> but uh, we, my wife and I, uh, they, uh, I was talking to them about something else, and they asked me what I did, and I told them. And they said, oh, we're just the person we want to talk to. We said, we're looking to put someone in the archives. We don't have any entertainers in there. So they're just finishing that off now. And my, you can go into the archives in Fredericton and sit down and they'll play a lot of the records I gave them and they copied them all. Some of their TV shows that I had copies of, they did it all and the whole story on us and you can just go and sit down and they'll ask for us and they'll bring it up and show you. Oh, that's so cool. So you, when yeah. you when you go back out to New Brunswick and you're running the Red Lantern, you're, you're, you continue to record, but for your own label? I recorded under my own label then, uh, TWA Records and and we put our records in the stores and so on under PWA. And, um, you know, hopefully we're going to make, make our money back on each one. We usually do. And, and we sold them off a of stage and, and so on. And we still do like, uh, we still, uh, I just did that record. The last record I just did was my 51st album, uh, over the years. And I said, it's going to quit at 50, but, I had nothing to do, so I did another one, and I had it all ready to go anyway. But. That's great. Yeah, I was going to say, 51 albums is quite an impressive feat and a really great catalog that you've been able to amass over these years. 
there's a lot of them a lot of your old stuff is uh people have kind of uploaded those old records from those paragon and uh, marathon record labels onto youtube and that's i think where i found a bunch of your stuff uh, is waiting for my hanging a song that you wrote as well yeah i wrote that song as well and uh actually i wrote that when we were doing the prison show um i wanted something to fit uh, fit that um error you know or fit what we were doing then and i wrote i think 30 days 30 dollars which was a talking song and i did for that uh, particular show as well sure i i uh i really do like your version of the roy Payne song holding up the wall was was roy a friend of yours roy was a friend of ours and he he's done shows with us over the years and uh and so on he was a fantastic writer roy wrote a lot of songs for the american people as well but that's one he wrote and uh, i really liked it so i did i did that one and i think i did another one i'm trying to think of the name of it off the top of my head on my new record i and um i did a, one one other time too was uh, oh the maple leaf song he wrote that uh, all about canada and i've i've recorded a few of his songs over the years he's i haven't seen him for a few years now i used to see him when i Used to go in and do those country uh, reunion shows in, in Ontario, but I haven't seen him for a few years. But and I haven't heard any new songs on the radio from him, so I don't know if he's still singing or what's going on with him. He was uh, on, in the same sort of circuit as you guys were in the '60s and '70s in Toronto. Yeah, he did, and uh, he uh, he played a lot of clubs. And when he wasn't working, he'd come in. We worked all the time. He'd come in and see us in the clubs, and I'd bring him up, and he'd sing with us, and and so on. And, um, he was a fantastic songwriter. Uh, you know, he should have been really down in the States and writing for all the American artists. He did some, and Gene Watson, I think did a few of his stuff and a few of the other people down there. But, uh, but I guess he was happy just being where he was. So, well, Mr. Hooper, I've taken up enough of your time. I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your story with us here today. You were in Toronto at, at such an exciting period of time for Hockey Talk and country music. Appreciate you shining a little bit of a light on that for me. And, uh, you know, congratulations on uh, what remains a fruitful career. You know, I keep saying every year I'm going to retire, but I haven't done it yet. So No, you're a so lifer. I'm... You're a lifer. Well, I think I am. <laughs> Thanks again, Al. Okay, Sean. Thank you. Take care. I know. Well, friends, I hope that you enjoyed my chat with the East Coast Ambassador, Mr. Al Hooper. Thanks again to Al for taking the time to share his story with us. You can find some of his more recent material wherever you're streaming music for a nominal monthly fee, or I'll suggest you go down that YouTube rabbit hole to sample some of those early recordings. Follow along with the Northern Report Spotify playlist, where you can hear music from the folks that I've covered in the Hockey Talk Times column, as well as here on the podcast. If you're digging the show, I respectfully request you subscribe, follow, like, share, or leave us a rating, wherever you do that kind of thing. And thanks for taking the time to do so. Our logo was created by Boots Graham of Boots and the Hoots, Central Alberta's finest hockey talkers. Music on the show today, courtesy of Sean Burns and Lost Country, The Divorcees, and Skinny Dick. From local legends, to regional stars, to the cream of the Canadian crop, you'll find it all here on the Northern Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll chat later. Hey, you got something good for me? Go ahead now. Your great journey has begun.